part of this film happened on New Year's Eve. Does that make it a holiday movie? We're still up all night, and this episode, we watched Can't Buy Me Love. Hello, everybody, and welcome to USA Up All Night with me, Rhonda. Hi, I'm Gilbert Godfrey, the comedian in the cupboard for USA Up All Night. In this movie, you'll see two of your favorite stars. Now, if you drink enough beer, you'll start seeing more of your favorite stars. Stay with me on USA Up All Night. Welcome to the first Still Up All Night episode of 2021. You've found the podcast that celebrates the films of USA's Up All Night series. I'm Travis Yates, joined by my friend from the high school clique that would have started the AV Club, Rob Katie. Rob, happy 2021. Happy New Year. And, and it's a long time coming. I'm glad that 2020 is <laughs> in the rearview mirror and we are moving on to hopefully better things. It's the... The longest, slowest year ever, yet somehow I'm still in awe that the year is over. Absolutely. And this episode, we've got what I call a themed film in honor of the holidays. It's 1987's Can't Buy Me Love. I say it's a holiday film. Rob says it isn't. So let's do this thing like they did in 2020 and argue about it and then walk away with neither one of us changing our minds. How about that? (laughs) No. It, it, this is something that we've been talking about for a month now, and I'm glad that it's finally here so I can change your mind. Um, Rob, I want to talk about why Can't Buy Me Love is a holiday movie, and then you can lay out whatever argument you want for why it's not. All right. Okay, so the movie's narrative takes place over one school year, but it builds to two poignant scenes. The second is, of course, the climax of the film, Ronald Miller's monologue in the end where he stands up for the jock and threatens to break his arm with a bat. But the second scene, and the one that I'd actually call the first climax of the film, is the New Year's Eve party. And I say this because I feel like the film almost has two protagonists, which is rarely done in film. Character types can be broken down into two specific, several specific categories. Your protagonist is often confused with being the good guy, but that's not always the case. Uh, It's just the main character of the film whose story is being told that doesn't necessarily have to be a good guy. Patrick Bateman in American Psycho is an example of a psychopathic killer who is the main character of the film, the protagonist. And then after the protagonist, you have major and minor characters that can serve a multitude of purposes, uh, but typically they're there to help advance the plot or develop other characters more fully. And then, of course, you have an antagonist or plural, antagonists, who uh, pose some sort of a barrier in the way of the protagonist accomplishing his or her goal. So Amanda Peterson's character, Cindy Mancini, evolves so much that I feel almost like she's a second protagonist in the film. And she and Ronald kind of almost end up each other's antagonist. So why is this important? You're probably wondering why I'm 
straying way away from the argument. Well, it's <laughs> it's relevant, Rob, because I'd say that the New Year's Eve scene where Cindy confronts and defeats her antagonist, Ronald Miller, that's kind of the the climactic scene for her. She reclaims her place as queen of the school, but she's changed and evolved as a person, and we see that in the, the way she spends more time at home with her mom and responds to her friends. She starts sticking up for Ronald, things of that nature. So uh, that's my first point of why this, uh, this scene that's so cen- central to the narrative and to our characters, and it occurs on New Year's Eve over the holidays. So that's my first argument for why uh, this should be considered a holiday movie. Any any rebuttal to well, that? Um, I, I will agree with the majority of your points there that she is like a you know transitions as the movie progresses into you know our, our antagonist or, or co-antagonist and and uh, has this arc as long as you know Ronnie does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I I guess the the pivotal response I have is so take the holiday component out of the scene and does the scene change in any way shape or form it and, does and I say no I say it does because it was the uh, plot device that got uh, not the whole school but all of the popular kids together which was the whole point of this film of the, the desire to be popular and to be in this crowd and without the New Year's party, he's not in this crowd. But that could be any high school party whatsoever. But it there, wasn't. You, know, you, you it, need no reason to, to have high school kids in a party scene. But they chose New Year's Eve. Well, because we're, we're on a journey through the school year. You know, and their, their initial uh, rental agreement is, is what, four weeks? Yes, one month. And then... Yeah, and then as that ends, obviously he he's now one of the cool kids, so you have to follow his journey throughout the school year, as you know he ascends into the cool kids and then comes crashing down to the lowest of the low. So my rebuttal to your rebuttal is that you could then use that argument with any holiday film and say, well, if you just take the holiday out of it, a family can get together for any reason. So let's not call it. A holiday film planes trains and automobiles he could be trying to get home for any number of reasons so if you take the holiday out it's not a holiday film but you 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 can't take the holiday out it's there and so that's why but i think it has to play a, a key role in the plot itself like okay. christmas vacation you know the whole movie changes if it's not Christmas. Okay. You know, you, you lose all the decorating scenes. You lose the tree scene. You know, you could have the turkey scene if you switched it to Thanksgiving, but you know, it has a different effect because you're at a Christmas dinner. Um, you know, and and I would say you could make a case that Plane Trains and Automobiles really isn't a holiday movie either. It, it, to me, it doesn't play enough. It's just the the as you said the sort of the premise that gets the ball rolling that if removed. The, the movie remains largely unchanged. Yep. The same reason why I say Die Hard is definitively not a Christmas movie. Oh, you've just opened a can of worms now. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, the, the the holiday in planes, trains, and automobiles is definitely the MacGuffin. So that's it's it's the, the, the carrot dangling that we don't ever need to see. Uh, okay, so point-counterpoint on that. All right, my, uh, my next point 
is in terms of film structure. So films have three acts. And act one is the exposition where character and setting are introduced. And then once we have an inciting event, and in this case it's the wine being spilled on Cindy's suede outfit and then her deal with Ronald, we get to act two, which is the rising action. And this is the majority of, of any film. And act two ends with a climax where the protagonist finally faces off with the antagonist and either wins or is defeated. Obviously, the protagonist typically wins in Hollywood because they go for the feel-good endings. So act three, then, is the resolution. It usually wraps everything up in a nice bow for the audience. It reveals how characters were changed by the result of the climax and where their characters are heading in the future. So there's something that almost every film has in their narrative, and that's a midpoint. And the midpoint of a film typically occurs in the middle of the rising action, and it's done to take the film in another direction. It's a device used to kind of freshen up the narrative in the middle of a film, so it's less Mm -hmm. predictable. Can't Buy Me Love is an hour and 30 minutes, but the New Year's Eve scene that serves as a midpoint for the narrative comes at one hour and 10 minutes with just 20 minutes left in the film. So this is a pre-climax climax. That's a new film term I just invented, Rob, and I'm <laughs> sticking to my guns on this one. If a film's climax takes place during the holidays, it's a holiday movie. And since this scene is a pre-climax climax, it's clear evidence of a holiday movie. Well, now if you have to invent a term to explain <laughs> something, I think you're on terribly thin ice. Uh, okay, listen, here's a second piece, a third piece, really, of non-substantial evidence for you. So the other day, my wife and I were watching a fun little indie Christmas movie with Paul Rudd and Paul Giamatti called All is Bright. Have you seen this? Oh, I've not even heard of it. Okay, no. it's, it's from 2013. It's fantastic, a dark comedy. But the, but the movie starts with Giamatti's character paroled from prison, and no one's there to pick him up, so he's walking along this highway all by himself to get home. And... Uh, my wife says, oh, this reminds me of Can't Buy Me Love when he's walking home alone on New Year's Eve. Now, Rob, you've met my wife. She's not a yeah. film connoisseur by any <laughs> means. Okay, she, I married one of those two. She is, is lacking in general film knowledge. So the fact that she immediately went to this holiday scene in Can't Buy Me Love shows that the lasting impact from the film on the everyday viewer is the infamous New Year's Eve scene and its aftermath. No, I, I completely disagree with that. <laughs> the lasting effect has got to be the monologue at the end. Uh, okay, so though the film is the length of a school year narratively, I feel like the true build is to the holidays. When Ronald reaches his height of popularity, we see the school decorated with lights and garland. Uh, this is when Cindy tries to reconcile with Ronald, and he pushes back, telling her, almost like a pre-monologue monologue here. <laughs> she, he tells her she saw him as a dork for 17 years, and now she wants to ride the Ronnie Miller Express, and that a ticket with another girl won't cost him a thousand bucks. I feel like that's like the lost monologue of this film. And then yes. that is followed by the New Year's Eve climactic party where Bobby returns from Iowa and confronts Cindy. Ronald is exposed as a fraud, and he's left walking home alone on New Year's Eve. All the while, all long sin or old lying sand i saying i always mispronounce that is playing mm-hmm. his old friends are driving by it's such a powerful scene and you say that's not well, a lasting impact well i think it is a, a lasting impact but not the lasting impact for, from okay. the movie and and I, I do concede that that 
scene occurring on that holiday makes it significantly more impactful. So in, in that case, oh, that holiday does matter. I feel you coming I, around now. You've just no, now no, you've no, just I, given a reason why that, that that scene needed to take place on the holiday. So that negates no, your first counter argument. I did not say it needed to. <laughs> I said it, it does make it more impactful that it did. OK, fine. You know, any holiday of, of, you know, presenting someone alone on any holiday makes that aloneness more significant or seemingly more significant you know obviously for their their daily life of loneliness it wouldn't change a thing but okay so you've you've presented some good counterpoints but i have perhaps the most damning piece of evidence against all of your arguments rob and that is that can't buy me loved appeared on the december 25th 1992 usa up all night christmas special episode USA Up All Night, the very reason for why this podcast exists, and you and I are here today having this discussion. They dubbed this film a holiday movie, including it as the first film in their Christmas special where Rhonda Shear dressed up as a sexy Santa and went shopping. Rob, this is a holiday movie per USA Up All Night. Um, it, can, it can be the impetus for our podcast and still be wrong. I'm, I'm going to tell Rhonda you said that. Oh, okay. Silent Night, Deadly Night 4 was the other Christmas pairing, by the way, on that holiday special that they had on Christmas well, and night. I, would have to, I will have to say, too, that, I mean, could it possibly simply be that, uh, you know, they're looking for viewers on a night, you know, that's tough to, to gain viewers. So you've got to put... Some, some reasonably quality material in front of everyone or, or a known entity, in, at least in this case. Um, yeah, so maybe that's all they were going for. And then it happened to cover a holiday. So yeah, Sounds like you're making the there. argument for me now. I feel like you've come around and now you're making the argument for why this is a holiday movie. No, I, 100% not. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to have to... Take it to a Twitter poll and let the viewers weigh in on this, or the listeners and viewers of the film weigh in on this, because I feel like uh, I feel like we're going in circles. But you've heard my argument, you've heard Rob's argument, so please weigh in on the Twitter poll that we will post on our Twitter uh, page at Still Up Podcast. All right, Rob, let's dig into the movie here. Um, can't buy me love is a break like you mentioned from putting some quality out there it's a break from the typical usa up all night film i mean it is a teen comedy which certainly fits the bill but this is a touchstone pictures film which was actually the film distribution arm of disney so yeah Uh, so this film by far has the best production value of, of any film we've covered so far would you agree oh absolutely yeah, it, it, yeah, and I, I think in you know across the board, sort of top to bottom, the the um, sort of the most uniform quality throughout the movie, and the best acting, and at least uh, from a consistency perspective of the you know the major players all the way down to the sort of non-role players, you know, just sort of uniformly better. Yeah, it looks like it has a big budget, but Rob, Can't Buy Me Love was made for just one point eight million dollars. You can believe that it was actually produced as an indie film. It grossed thirty-one million dollars worldwide, so a great return on 
Disney's investment. Um, not bad for a film that almost didn't get made. The original script was written by Michael Swerdlick, and it was titled Boy Rents Girl. Yeah. Uh, not, not a great title there. Um, <laughs> That's it, a tough one. It was actually purchased by TriStar Pictures, and when, when Swerdlick first met with studio execs at TriStar, he said one of the execs told him she didn't know why they bought the script because it was almost like prostitution in how Cindy Mancini was treated. So TriStar actually dumped the project. The script was then purchased and produced by the much smaller Apollo Pictures as the indie film. And that explains the small, you know, less than $2 million budget. Once it was finished, Disney purchased the film for $6 million, and then it was distributed um, via Touchstone. And this was one of their first outside acquisitions in company history. So a little bit of history here for Can't Buy Me Love and Disney. And Disney reportedly spent $100,000 for the rights to the Beatles song Can't Buy Me Love. So in perspective, that ended up being more than 5% of the film's original budget. Oh, I was going to say, I wasn't able to find anything about the budget, so I'd be curious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you answered the question already. Yeah, there you go. So Can't Buy Me Love debuted in theaters on August 14, 1987. It grossed almost $5 million on its opening weekend, so Disney almost recouped its, uh, its costs there right off the bat. It originally aired on USA Up All Night on June 30, 1992 on a special USA Up All Night episode titled Grad Night 92. And the second film played that night was the John Hughes film 16 Candles. So Up All Night with a little gift to graduating viewers with some quality here on Grad Night. What do you think of that premise, Rob? And do you remember this? I, I don't remember this. Um, yeah, I don't remember seeing 16 Candles you know, in, in relation with this at all. So I, it's, I, I think a, a good move, you know, to um, garner viewers. Yeah, that's a smart decision. Yeah, they were always looking for something happening in pop culture or, you know, something relative to uh, the themes of their movies, a.k.a. the Christmas special. And uh, so this occurring around graduation time. And I don't, I don't remember seeing this either. And I certainly don't remember seeing this coupled with a John Hughes film, but obviously they, they went with a complete break from the traditional schlock that they, that they have yeah. uh, on that night. Anyway, as I mentioned earlier, it then played as a part of Rhonda's Christmas show on a USA up all night. That was on Christmas night, 1992 USA up all night would again air this on Christmas, 1993. Um, and then, they, uh, the, you know, the evidence is mounting, Rob, against your argument here with two, two <laughs> Christmas appearances uh, for this film on, on Up All Night. It aired three more times between then and 1996. It is directed by Steve Rash, who is not a household name by any stretch of the means, but he did direct a few classics, including the 1993 Pauly Shore comedy Son-in-Law and the 1996 Whoopi Goldberg comedy Eddie. Any... Son-in-law is a household favorite here. Mm -hmm. uh, there are just a few scenes in that movie that I will forever find funny. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a cult classic in our household as well. Uh, in the early 2000s, he directed some straight-to-video sequels, including American Pie Bandcamp and two Bring It On sequels. And uh, Rob, it might surprise you, it did me, that Rash's directorial debut actually came in 1978 with the Buddy Holly story. Oh, wow. So, so he's he's done some, I mean, that was a, a 
decent movie. Yeah. So yeah, he's he's got some some acumen there. Yeah, he made his jump to comedy in 1981 with the Hollywood satire film Under the Rainbow, starring Chevy Chase and Carrie Fisher. I mean, I want to dig more into the career of Steve Rash at some point because it seems like he should be more well-known and have a bigger filmography, but he only had like 15 films to his credit and nothing recent. Yeah, I saw that as well and was kind of surprised with with a few of the movies that he had on there that was sort of a you know, short career or, or not a, a lot happened. Yeah. So Patrick Dempsey was cast as Ronald Miller because they wanted someone who wasn't well-known to play the nerdy lead role. And um, you know, even then, one of the only issue, big issues I have with the film is that I felt like it was a bit of a stretch to paint Dempsey, even a gangly 21-year-old Patrick Dempsey, as the school's number one nerd. Rob, what was your take on Dempsey as uh, you know, the nerd and his crew of nerd friends in the film? I mean, there's certainly a, a uh, kind of goofy quality to him, but uh, you know, it's, it's like with all those those movies where you, you put glasses on someone and, and make their hair disheveled and suddenly they're unattractive or, you know, um, or nerdy or, you know, whatever, you know, it's sort of a, a Hollywood trope because, you know, Hollywood's in the business of casting attractive people. So, um, I think he was certainly surrounded by the, the right group to, to be a part of sort of the nerd crew. But, uh, yeah, as you said, he didn't didn't really fit the bill all too well. Yeah, I love the scene where you know, the first day of school, walking in together with his now fake girlfriend, and she's like, "Okay, we got to do something about your appearance." He's you know just wearing a, a shirt tucked in and a beret on on his head, and literally the glasses. And she does you know takes the beret off, runs moose through the hair, rips the sleeves of his shirts off, shirt off, yeah. untucks it, and then takes the glasses off, and boom, there you go. R- Ronald Miller becomes Ronnie. The, the soon-to-be cool kid. I always love that move in, in movies of just sort of lightly tug at the seam on a shoulder and mm-hmm. away rips the whole shoulder, you know, as though it's nothing. Yeah, definitely in the 80s, uh, clothing must have just been made incredibly cheap with, uh, with their stitchings anyway. Uh, so an even lesser-known Amanda Peterson was cast as Cindy Mancini, the captain of the cheerleaders, most popular girl in school, uh, and as we've already discussed, a possible second protagonist of the film. Uh, Mancini was just 16, or Mancini, Peterson was just 16 years old when the film was shot, and Rob, her story is very tragic. Uh, she would not enjoy the same success that her counterpart, Patrick Dempsey, did uh, after this film. In fact, in 1994, she retired from acting altogether after a series of TV series appearances and made-for-TV movies. She struggled with drug abuse, and she was arrested four times between 2000 and 2012 for various reasons, including DUI and possession of narcotic equipment. She was found dead in her Colorado apartment in 2015. She was just 43 years old at the time of her death. And Rob, her series of mug shots are so sad. I mean, they look like the public service announcements for why you shouldn't do drugs, um, you know, watching her... Um, physical appearance just fade so quickly it was it was sad to see her downfall especially after playing just such a young spirited role in this film well yeah and she you know had a a number of sort of bit parts in in tv series and things like that so yeah it seemingly um had a bright future ahead of her it's sad you know how things turned out yeah and you know because she wasn't as well known there's you know it's not 
there's not a whole lot documented as to, to why, except after her death, her mom came out and said she had struggled with drug abuse, but she had been clean. I believe she has two um, children, so you know, just incredibly sad. And she, you know, she, I, her, she was great in this. I mean, I'm really surprised yeah. being uh, such a, a young, attractive actress that that she didn't get some some prime roles after this. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, particularly when you, you know, in, in hindsight, like I, at the time watching it, I had no idea she was actually sixteen. You know, and, and of the age of her character and. Yeah, it's, it's you know, again a sad tale. Yeah, she seemed a bit of an old soul, as you know. You talked about her character arc, and she really does uh, have an arc from this kind of just. Uh, she even admittedly says, you know, I do two good things: shop and lay around and do nothing. <laughs> at one point, <laughs> and and yet she becomes this kind of more caring and uh, understanding uh, person. So a, a big character arc, and and she, she as an actress, I thought was perfect for that for that role so uh the movie was remade in 2003 by warner brothers dubbed love don't cost a thing and it starred nick cannon as the nerd in 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 the patrick dempsey role i didn't watch this version out of principle normally when a classic (laughs) that i love is remade i avoid it like the plague i'll never watch the footloose remake uh i'll never watch this one either did you see love don't cost a thing or do you remember when it was remade i had uh, you know, in research for this was my first time learning it was a remake of this. You know, it's, although, uh, is it is it a, really a remake when the same writer's involved? Oh, one of the producers, yeah. Um, well, I, I, def, I think that almost lends some validity to it if you've got well, yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody involved in the first one. But even then, I just, you know, you just don't mess with a classic. So. Well, it says he the the writer was involved as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't see. That. I just saw one of the producers. Yeah. So, okay. Well, interesting. I still won't do uh, it. But yeah, yeah. I never never saw it. Maybe at the time I I would have just to for comparison purposes, mm-hmm. um, you know, to see what they had changed. But yeah, I'm back with you and not having seen it, so can't comment. All right. So we've already talked quite a bit about the plot of the film. So let's just briefly break it down in chronological order. As I mentioned, this is a rags to riches sort of teen comedy where our nerd Ronald Miller is in love with his neighbor, Cindy Mancini. He's been mowing lawns all summer uh, between his junior and senior year to save up for a telescope. So that's the, oh, he's a smarty because he's you know willing to spend $1,000 on a telescope. Uh, Cindy Mancini is presented as somewhat of a sympathetic character, even though she's the most popular girl in school, because her boyfriend Bobby has gone off to play football at Iowa and has basically forgotten her. So we get a little bit of, of opening uh, exposition to to kind of make us feel sympathetic for this girl that otherwise has seems to seems to have it all. So a lovelorn Cindy asks to borrow her mom's white suede outfit for a back to school party, but her mom says no. Cindy wears it anyway, and wouldn't you know it, one of the school's jocks, Quint, uh, spills red wine all over the outfit. And uh, when Ronald goes to the mall to purchase the telescope that he's been saving up for, or microscope, as his mom constantly calls it in a running gag that I find hilarious, um, (laughs) he views Cindy through the telescope across the mall, desperately trying to return the stained outfit. And uh, he runs to the store, $1,000 in hand, which happens to be the exact cost of the outfit, and then makes a proposition to Cindy to pretend to date him for a month to make him popular. I want to rent you. You want to rent me? Yeah. You pretend you like me, and we go out for just a few weeks. And 
and that will make me popular. Just going out with me is not going to make you popular. Well, I have a thousand dollars. It says it will. Rob, I thought the exposition just breezed right along here, introducing all the key elements leading up to the deal that Cindy and Ronald would broker. What did you think of the film's opening act? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. They, you know, jump to it very quickly to to really, you know, um, lend time for the character arcs, which, you know, I think was a, a smart idea. Yeah, and then a lot happens in the next month, told through a series of scenes that, to me, um, just like Act One, just kind of breeze by naturally. Um, Ronald slowly gets accepted by the, you know, the popular clique, and he starts to become more comfortable in his skin as as a cool kid. He quickly alienates his old friends, standing them up for poker nights and you know football games without telling them. It's done implicitly, but we start to see this, you know, Ronald slowly turning into a bit of a jerk at times. Um, but unless you were in the small group of super popular cheerleaders or jocks in your high school, you like, likely sympathized and related more to, to Ronald's want to climb the social ladder. Um, what'd you make of, of the evolution here of Ronald Miller during his month of dating Cindy Mancini? Well, uh, it definitely you know goes to his head at, at a point as, and you know, in a crescendo when he has his sort of argument with, with, um, Cindy and, you know, about her, you know, riding the Ronnie train and it not costing him a thousand dollars. You know, we, we sort of reach peak asshole at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's what he ends up doing to his friends and his, his rise is, is pretty, uh, pretty sad. And, uh, you know, but there's, I think something there for, for everyone, um, you know, cause we all, as we get older, you know, sort of, go from from one group of friends to another and and not all of it is is in like in this case an intentional thing some of it just sort of happens and and there are shades of that sort of shown in here uh when they uh, typically refer back to you know oh we went to you know we were in sixth grade together or we you know i I don't remember how early back they they first what that first mention is whether it was like kindergarten together and you know, how they all go their separate ways. And, and uh, Kenneth, you know, his best friend talks about, you know, sort of liking who they are and not having a problem with not being a part of the, the cool clique. Yeah, the scripting I thought was really clever in, in just the way it, it kind of slid information into us that, that gave us a, a theme throughout the, the film. And but it wasn't hitting us over the head with it ex- except in those moments where the characters were delivering their important monologues. Yeah, the, there's a scene when Kenneth Worman, his best friend, who's played by Courtney Gaines, a, in my opinion, underrated character actor who would later appear with Patrick Dempsey in Sweet Home Alabama. So it's cool to see their reunion um, on screen. But yeah, he says, you know, they're just discussing... Uh, Ronald's musings on being popular in the, in their final year and and Kenneth you know says I like who we are and and um, you know we were all forced to be in the same room is <laughs> it was their line of why they used to all be friends and now they're not now that they've moved on to high school so uh, a re- yeah a really good um, kind of just clever way to introduce that of you know you got two characters here tra- traversing down different roads where Ronald Miller wants to be popular and and Kenneth is uh, enjoying his his status and accepting where where he is in the social rung of high school 
Uh, I thought Dempsey and Peterson had great chemistry, and I loved how their relationship progressed from those early awkward stages. You know, like Ronald picks up Cindy for a date without a car, uh, and then by the end of the their time that the month is up, you see Ronald driving Cindy's car. So that was just kind of a neat mm-hmm. little clever um, way. It's not again not hit us over the head with it, but just we see it on screen, and and you, that's you know that's something when you start trusting your boyfriend to drive your car. Uh, and we need to talk about Cindy's car, right? We've seen and talked about <laughs> yes, this before. Yes. It's a staple for beautiful women in 80s movies. It's the white convertible Volkswagen. Rob, we saw this in Fraternity Vacation, uh, right? And in that episode, we discussed its appearance in License to Drive. And now we see it here as Cindy Mancini's car. Here it car. is again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Apparently, that, either that's the same car being passed around uh, by movie studios uh, or, you know, that was a quintessential you know, popular pretty girl car. Yeah. In, in my neck of the woods, it's certainly, I don't think I ever saw one. So. Yeah, certainly not me either, but I went to high school in the Midwest. So that exactly wasn't exactly a, uh, meant for the Midwest car yeah, <laughs> trying to yeah. drive that in the, in the, in the winter. Uh, this was set in Tucson, Arizona, which you and I had previously discussed just kind of an odd place, um, for, for it to, to be, but then if you see the indie kind of spirit of this film, and it was actually shot, a lot of the scenes were shot in the Tucson High School with students as and teachers as extras. So you know, finding out that it was done on pretty basically a shoestring budget, um, you know, kind of explains some of the reasons for why it took place in just such an odd. You know, we both agreed this feels like it would be made in L.A. You know, like a, yeah, a Hollywood sort school. Of- what you assume going in, you know, but then as you know, you see a little bit more of the landscape, it's clearly not. And yeah, I I didn't see anything in, in investigating if there was some sort of tax break afforded to filming in Arizona or if, if, yeah, it just was, you know, like you said, because of the, the school worked with them, if they just ended up there or. Yeah, I didn't either. I actually didn't uncover any, any kind of, uh, roadmap to why how they ended up in tucson and and again it's also it didn't play a major role in any way in the narrative it's just the only way we see it is uh you know when you see it on there like i saw their baseball uniforms had tucson across the front and then at one point in the school you see it referenced in like a a sign about the sports team so that's really the only couple times that it that it comes comes up so it doesn't doesn't play any role narratively uh, okay, so Ronald takes Cindy to an airplane graveyard to view the moon through a telescope in a super romantic final date as their month comes to an end, and it turns into what I thought was a tragic scene. At you know, the two are just not on the same page here. Cindy's fallen for Ronald, and uh, you know she wants to continue uh, this relationship. Ronald, he he's could couldn't even grasp that she would be into him, so. Uh, in the scene, you know, Ronald says he's new to all of this and asks Cindy how they should do it. She tells him that they should just let it happen naturally. She's talking about a kiss. She wants to kiss him. He's talking about how to stage their breakup. Were you as broken up about this as I was, Rob? By this point in the movie, I loved (laughs) these two as a couple and I didn't want them to break up. Yeah. And and I think, uh, yeah, the movie did a good job and I think it was, it was more for just them of, of almost all the characters <clears throat> giving them a moment of sort of more humanity than they would typically get 
as these archetypes, you know, the, the, the super popular kids or the, the jocks or they all had li uh, one little line somewhere in there where they showed an extra level of sympathy and, and that they were, you know, like normal people. And that, yeah, at times or at one point we were all friends and, and sort of helped connect that. Um, and, and so, yeah, she obviously gets more of those moments than anyone else and and that went a long way into building you could see she was a good human being and they really hit it off and he introduced all sorts of new things to her and yeah and here you are and and i thought the scene played really well just the the whole flow of it where you know she's as you said talking about you know their their first kiss and how it transitions and because he can't again as you said conceive that she would ever really be into him so he goes right into the, you know, how, how to do our breakup and, mm -hmm. and is just blind and oblivious to the fact that that's not at all what she's talking about. Let's talk a minute about this small but popular group of friends that they have. That Cindy surrounds herself with her two besties, Barbara and Patty. Barbara as Tina Caspery, who starred in My Mom's a Werewolf, as featured in episode two of Still Up All Night. And then opposite of the gals here is the three boys, Big John, Quint, and Ricky. Uh, Ricky's played by 90s one-hit wonder pop star Gerardo. I love that. Yeah, uh, Rico Suave yes. himself. Uh, and then Big John is played by Eric Bruscotter, who's he has a huge filmography that includes Starship Troopers, Crimson Tide, and a ton of TV series appearances. Uh, yeah, I love this group. Each one had a unique personality, and as you said, they you know everybody was given a chance to kind of breathe a little bit. They weren't just mindless drones that you might normally find in a teen comedy, even though they obviously take part in the group mentality of the popular clique. That was one of the themes. Um, but you know, Big John was was you know just kind of the big dumb jock, but you know unassuming. And uh, Quint was the real jerk of the group. I mean, just completely careless, and and he's the one that spills wine on on the uh, Cindy's outfit, but then, you know, doesn't even think twice about it. Doesn't apologize. And then Ricky played by Gerardo is the, just, you know, the, the, the real, he's the Rico Suave, right? He's the player. Yeah. He's always, he's always seen with the ladies. Um, what'd you think of the small group of, of popular kids here? I mean, they, they checked all the boxes, covered all the bases, you know, um, but I, I, as I sort of indicated before, I think they were all given a little bit more than they normally would. Like, I feel like so many scenes could have easily been been played of them just being horribly ruthless and, and insulting, it, you know, every turn. And they aren't. They, you know, they, they have moments where, where they, you know, and you see it as they fairly quickly come to accept Ronnie and enjoy spending some time with him. Uh, so yeah, I, I think the casting was was well done and and uh, it worked in this case. Yeah. So uh, after their staged breakup, um, Cindy tells Ronald to never change, and and Ronald says, "Oh me, never." And then the film cuts to the next scene of Ronald bursting through the doors, hair slicked back with tons of product, sunglasses on inside the school, just acting ridiculous because now he's popular and he'll get away with it. And, you know, we've created a monster here. And like you said, just, you know, the, the douchebaggery is, it starts to become off the charts here once he's released from, from dating Cindy, pretending well, I, faux dating Cindy. 
I think that's one of the only times you get sort of a, a, a hint that you're in Arizona, too, because his outfit is sort of Western inspired. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he has, I, I, I always forget what those things are called, but it's like the, the bolo mm-hmm. necktie thing. And yep. it kind of has like a, um, you know, some stones in it that, you know, are, are sort of a regional thing for Arizona. Yeah. Uh, so Patty tells Ronald he's taking her to the Columbus Day dance, and Ronald tells her he has moves that are out of this world. <laughs> the problem is he can't dance. So he turns on what he thinks is American Bandstand, but it turns out to be the PBS African Cultural Hour, and the dance move Ronald copied were from the African Anteater Ritual. And when he starts to do this dance at the school, Everybody starts to join in, much to the chagrin of Cindy, who starts to realize how you know the dynamics of school cliques and popularity is working uh, by just watching the entire school mindlessly follow Ronald. And this dance was actually choreographed by Paula Abdul, which <laughs> learning this doesn't make me feel as bad for having done this dance myself at a, a high school dance or two. Uh, what, what do you think of the African anteater ritual? I mean, that's just one of the, the best scenes in the movie as, as you know, uh, we sort of already touched on uh, outside of the podcast where you then see, you know, his parents doing the dance at uh, their holiday party. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, you know, obviously ridiculous, but, you know, it, it went a long way to showing, you know, how these clicks and, you know, the, the mindset of everyone and, uh, so yeah, I, I mean it's a great scene, and of course we also that's where we're uh, one of the the better scenes for a young Seth Green comes in, where he's the one to realize that his brother, you know, was watching the wrong channel, and you know finds that absolutely hilarious. Yeah, Seth Green as the younger brother here that that knows something's up, just because he knows how weird his brother is, and that Cindy Mancini would never date him, and so it's it's just kind of another running gag where. And nothing ever really comes of it, but he's constantly, uh, you know, following his brother, jumping in the back of the car to try to find on dates to find out what's going on. And, and he is just I, his character is hilarious uh, in this film. Um, and, and the dance scene too. Once everybody starts doing it, you've got the 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 his former nerdy friends who are <laughs> right. uh, referred to as the nerd herd by the cool kids. Uh, sitting sitting on the sides of the dance, and they all recognize it and all point it out and at the same time say, it's the African Anity Ritual. I love that scene. Hilarious. Okay, so Ronnie is firmly entrenched in the cool click, and a pivotal moment of the film occurs on Halloween night when Quint, Big John, and Ricky pull their annual prank by throwing eggs and tomatoes and dog shit on a house. And it turns out their annual house that they hit is the house of Kenneth. Uh, Ronnie's former best friend and uh, who he's long now alienated and um, I would argue that this is the midpoint for Ronald's character because it's kind of the final step that he has to take to just fully commit to shedding his own persona and becoming a popular kid willing to do whatever it takes to keep his social status and when when he objects to doing it Ricky says to Big John, see, I told you he was still a nerd. And that was enough to, to push Ronald over the top and grab the bag, toss it at Kenneth's door. Uh, but Kenneth's family was waiting. They were prepared this year to catch these these uh, hooligans in the act. And uh, Ronnie gets caught up in a net. 
running away, and Kenneth realizes it's Ronnie and lets him go. Uh, this was Ronald's full turn to the dark side. Would you agree? A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, and, and made all the more uh, impactful uh, the next day at school when, you know, Kenneth confronts him and, 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 you know, we get the seminal line, you shit on my house. Yes. Uh, that would, was almost removed from the film. Um, but, uh, Steve Rash argued that it was that it was powerful enough that it needed to stay in because this is ultimately you know it was Disney that that purchased the the rights to the the film and so I'm glad that that stayed in. Um, so this all culminates uh, t- on New Year's Eve with the party that we've previously discussed that makes it a holiday film. <laughs> Cindy's drunk and overhears Ronald using some lines from a poem that she wrote and shared with him earlier to seduce another girl and that coupled with Bobby showing up at the party and confronting her for supposedly dating the lawn boy um, leads Cindy to confess in front of everyone at the party the truth about Ronald paying her a thousand dollars to go out with her. Uh, Ronald becomes a social pariah and for the next several months he's basically exiled by everyone at school. You know, he tries to make things right with Kenneth at the arcade after this, but this is when, like you just mentioned, Kenneth grabs him and, you know, yells at him while teary eyed, You shit on my house, man, you shit on my house. A uh, real powerful scene between the two. Um, Sometime later, we see Kenneth helping Patty with her homework at lunch, to which Quint accuses him of pulling a Ronald McDonald Miller scam and trying to worm his way into the cool click. And he yanks Kenneth from the seat and pushes he pushes Patty down, which was a bit of a surprising move. I'm surprised that that was left in there. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But it really drove home what a jerk you know Quint was of, of this group. Uh, Ronald's watching all this from afar, and he finally decides to do something about it. He runs over, he picks up a bat on the way and he delivers an awesome monologue about how ridiculous high school clicks are. Oh, return of the living bread. Why don't you lay off? Why don't you go back where you belong, Jose? Take your hands off Kenneth or I'll break your arm. Your pitching arm. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, don't make me laugh. Lawn boy. Let's go. No! broke your arm once before, remember? You fell out of our treehouse. Kenneth picked you up, and we carried you 12 blocks to the hospital. Hey, you cried all the way. We were all friends then, remember? And now you want to end his life? Because he's talking to Patty on your side of the cafeteria. Oh, man, it's stupid. I know, because that's where I wanted to be. On your side, with your crowd. And I messed up. See, I tried to buy my way in. But Kenneth, he's not trying to buy anybody. He's just trying to make friends. Being himself. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. What'd you think of the film's climax here, Rob? Oh, this is, yeah, a, a scene, and we both, we touched on this, uh, outside of here but yeah you know it's you can recite it verbatim i i probably almost can and it's a scene that has always just stuck with me you know because as i indicated earlier we all have you know that sort of time in our life as we get older and you watch you know friends slowly 
travel in different directions as, as you know, we're no longer forced to be in the same classroom and, and you lose touch with people that you thought, you know, would be friends for life and, or were, you know, your best friend. And next thing you know, you're, you're in high school and you're all in, in wildly different groups. So yeah, it, uh, that, that moment, you know, that whole scene of, of, you know, we carried you 12 blocks to the hospital with a broken arm and you cried the whole way. Yeah. It's, I, I love that scene. Yeah, I'm a sucker for sentimental moments, and I tear up uh, every single time I watch this, even though I know it's coming, and, and yeah, like you said, I can recite it word for word. So, the falling action, act three of the film, it's pretty long, which I liked, especially for 80s films that kind of wrap up really quickly. Um, Ronald still has to make things right with Cindy, and they finally do talk and smooth things over. The film ends like it began with Ronald back on the mower. Cindy comes out with a check from her mom to pay Ronald for the lawn work. Uh, she gets into her car or gets into a car with friends, but then tire screech. Cindy jumps out of the car, runs back to Ronald, jumps on the mower. Cue the Beatles song "Can't Buy Me Love," and our couple is finally officially together. What would you what you think of the ending? <laughs> well, the one thing that stuck out to me is a little bit odd is. When the car pulls up, the guys in it, we have not seen the entire movie. It's the same crew of girls. Yeah, Patty and, but, and know, Barber in yeah, the back. Patty and Barb, yeah. And then two just sort of <laughs> random mm-hmm. guys brought in. I just always thought, you know, I sort of, you expect it to be, you know, Big John and, and Ricky or, or, you know, somebody from school and, and it isn't. Um, anyway, I, you know, again, a fitting finale to the movie. Um as she hops on the mower and and they have their first kiss so yeah yeah Yeah. good stuff um so you know this is i don't even think this is a question we need to ask but we always ask it uh rob is can't buy me love worth staying up all night for a hundred percent yeah you know about a great you know teen comedy that has a little something in it i think that that everybody can connect with and and uh Despite what many of the critics have said about it, uh, I know more people that enjoy this movie than don't. Yeah, it's funny because every time I watch this movie, I just I forget how much I absolutely love it. I wore this film out on VHS as a kid. I can recite it nearly line for line. It's fun. It's cheesy, but it says a lot for a teen comedy about high school life, the desire to become popular, but also the importance of being yourself. You know, it feels so much like a John Hughes film, which is mm. major props to Steve Rash and the entire Apollo Productions team, who did just a heck of a job with less than $2 million and an inexperienced cast. Uh, it's not only worth staying up for, but it should be in your own movie collection, along with all the John Hughes classics, in my opinion. So, um, you know, this, this, this one might not be as fun, Rob, because of the quality of the movie, but let's check in with what others are saying about the film. Uh, what do you think the audience score out of 100 is on Rotten Tomatoes for Can't Buy Me Love? And I, and I have to, I, I didn't intentionally cheat, but I think I saw it, uh, and I believe it was 48%, and I was blown away by that. Well, you have it reversed, so... If, It has a 74% approval rating, uh, and that's with 48,244 votes, so nearly 50,000 votes uh, from just your general film goer on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's a fresh. 
We got a we got a fresh okay, or okay. close to it. It's got a little popcorn next to it. I don't know if it's fresh rating gives you the full tomato. I'm not sure if that's like above eighty or, or how that works. But but surprisingly, the critics are as, and as you mentioned, the critics score for the film is just forty eight percent. It only has twenty three critics ratings. Uh, that's criminal, if you ask me. Um, you know, even if the narrative is not for you, the film is is much better than a forty eight percent fresh score. Uh, I wanted to know why. So here are some of the negative comments from critics. Um, one one critic wrote, "Its conformist happy ending negates the initial nonconformist feeling of the original premise." <laughs> and, and I don't think the critic put a whole lot of time into trying to deconstruct the narrative and and maybe didn't even stick around for that final monologue, which was the whole point of the film. Uh, another critic wrote, "Standard '80s teen angst fodder." So this critic, I don't think, understands why we love 80s teen movies so much. I mean, <laughs> exactly. it's because of the angst and how we deal with it. So not sure if you remove the teen angst from 80s movies. I don't know what you have left. Uh, and then another critic wrote, this: the film thinks it, thinks it wants to be sincere when all it truly wants to be is popular, just like the other kids' movies. So it sells <laughs> off its originality. I think that this uh, critique is unoriginal. <laughs> <laughs> in trying to compare the narrative to your own uh, critique. So I don't agree with that as well. I don't know. What do you think of those critics' comments? Well, I don't know if you saw, uh, Ebert gave it half a star. He hated oh, this movie. Wow. He he felt that it uh, essentially um, like presented a lot but had almost nothing to say about what it presents relative to, say, a John Hughes movie. Wow. So, That's yeah, insane. It, it was like a, a, a pale imitation in his eyes, oh. which is where I was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, get it. I, I could see him not liking it, but half a star was, yeah, yeah, not at all what I expected. Yeah, and, you know, we pointed out just the many ways that the, the theme and the messages were carried out. Uh, quite cleverly in this film. So I'm, I'm amazed of, of Ebert. I mean, I don't know these other critics from Rotten Tomatoes, so I can't really take umbrage with what they like and don't like, but this really that really surprised me, disappoints me yeah. coming from Ebert. So Very much so. Um, all right, so I know the answer, but before we close, I have to ask you, Rob, have I changed your mind at all? Will you now call Can't Buy Me Love a holiday movie? Absolutely not. Oh, that strong, huh? <laughs> yes. Oh. But I mean, you've already, I mean, when, when the sort of origin of this entire argument comes from Die Hard, and I'm firmly in the camp that it is not. So it's going to take a heck of a lot more information and, and uh, swaying for me to change my mind about this movie. Okay. Well, we want you to weigh in. Please take our poll on Twitter and let us know if you think can't buy me love is a holiday movie you can find us on twitter and facebook at still up podcast unlike ronald miller we promise to never change so join us next month where we will return to our b-movie roots and break down another schlocky usa up all night classically bad movie can't wait so have you saved up enough money yeah fifteen hundred dollars yeah i'm on 331 miles of grass this summer that's four dollars and 54 cents per mile. Mm, the Ronald Miller story. My life on a mower. Hmm. How much is the microscope? 